The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. And I don't have copies of the ad for you because to really appreciate it, you have to see it in color. And I just couldn't afford color copies for everybody. Um, but I but I will say that if you go to Google Image and um, put in quotation marks, um, um, everyone should have a plan. Um, it should be one of the first things that pops up, and it's it's definitely worth um, um, checking out and maybe saving on your desktop for a while to freak you out. Okay. In 2006, the Department of Homeland Security, which includes the Federal Emergency Management Agency, ran an ad in upscale U.S. food and home magazines. Above the admonishment, everyone should have a plan, the ad shows a brilliantly blue sky, a suburban home complete with American flag and yellow lab, and what I think most people would agree is a standard, though far from representative, image of an American family. They are white and mostly blonde. They are dressed in brightly colored, conservatively tailored casual clothes. They are holding hands with one another, and they are smiling because the ad tells us that in the event of, quote, terrorist attack or other emergency, end quote, they have a plan. Our breadwinning dad is going to drive home from work, stopping first to fill the minivan's gas tank. The minivan is very prominently featured in the ad. The caretaking mom is going to take her car, which isn't shown, to pick up the kids at school, then drive home to listen to the radio for official instructions. Even the dog has a plan to grab a chew toy before hopping into the minivan to join the family in driving away from the terrorist attack or other emergency. When I bring this ad to students in a college class I teach about the rhetoric of family values and the material basis for the rollbacks of welfare and reproductive rights, they immediately point out snags in the ad's privatized solution for public emergencies. For instance, if every minivan hit the highways, we would repeat what USA Today called the highway horror visited upon South Texas when three million people trying to flee Hurricane Rita stalled out in 100 mile long traffic jams. Some students also recall the contrasting images that saturated the US and world media outlets mere months before Homeland Security launched its Everyone Should Have a Plan campaign. The masses of people, primarily black, many very young and very old, all of them poor, packed into the New Orleans Convention Center or stranded on rooftops of drowned shacks, having been without any means to develop a plan for Hurricane Katrina beyond hunker down and pray. We also consider why it makes sense that the Department of Homeland Security would run this ad in such magazines as Food and Wine. Rather than explain or address FEMA's appalling negligence, the ad promotes victim blaming among a wealthy elite audience that's bound to accept the basic premise. The American family should take responsibility and be prepared. There is, as the ad says, no reason not to. My students have plenty to say about the assertion that families, not FEMA, are responsible for disaster management, given our study of the shredding of the social safety net. Even in this disproportionately <coughs> middle-class university, students relate stories of their families having slim or no resources for dealing with a job loss, catastrophic illness, unwanted pregnancy, or tuition hike. When I ask my students to tell me more about the image of the family in this ad, however, the word that they repeatedly use is typical. Typical American family, typical suburban family, typical leave it to beaver family. Even though all the available evidence and their own experience suggests there's nothing typical about it. 
Just a quarter of U.S. families with children, historian Stephanie Kuntz points out, match the model of the breadwinning father and the stay-at-home mother. Most students in my courses say that they grew up moving among a variety of family types, including single employed mother, employed mother and laid off father, and lesbian parents. It's not just that times have changed. As Kunz documents, for most of U.S. history, the everyone should have a planned family has not been the norm. She writes, quote, the family arrangements we sometimes mistakenly think of as traditional became standard for a majority of Americans and a realistic goal for others only in the post-war era, end quote. Between 1950 and 1960, the gross national product grew by nearly 250%. The number of people with discretionary income doubled, and by the decade's end, 70% of American families, an all-time high, lived in homes they owned. But even in this novel period, the decade we should remember not only of Ozzie and Harriet, but also of McCarthyism and insistent Jim Crow, even in this era, it would be incorrect to say that the model American family was a model of self-reliance. The surge in home ownership, for instance, was subsidized by the federal government, which provided to millions mortgages of up to 30 years with fixed interest rates of 2 or 3% and only 5% down, or if you were a veteran, $1 down. Prior to World War II, banks usually required down payments of 50% and would give mortgages for only 5 to 10 years. This American dream period, Kuntz argues, was an economic anomaly. Its promises of upward mobility for all, spurred further by the civil rights struggles of the 1960s, began to fade by the mid-70s as the post-war boom went bust. Moreover, the decade of the 1950s was socially regressive, as a past century's gains for women were reversed. For the first time in more than 100 years, Kuntz writes, the age for marriage and motherhood fell, and women's degree of educational parity with men dropped sharply. As historian Leslie Reagan documents, it was also during the family-loving 50s and early 60s that despite for the first time the wide availability of antibiotics, mortality rates for women having abortions skyrocketed. So at best, the everyone should have a planned family is a brief historical anomaly. Today, Kuntz writes, the, bread the bread male breadwinner family no longer provides the central experience for the vast majority of children. According to the AFL-CIO working families, 60% of women workers with school-aged children are responsible for bringing in half or more of their family's annual income, and 30% of women workers with school-aged children are their family's primary or sole breadwinner. Why then the stubborn persistence of a single and reactionary model to represent what a family is or ought to be? To answer this question, we need to consider why capitalism, even as it unleashes forces that constantly challenge the idea of the family and tear actual families apart, needs the family and invented it as we think of it in the first place. The family as we think of it today has not in fact always existed. Rather, the family as a way to organize people in a society comes into being with the development of social classes and inequality within what had previously been egalitarian societies. This was one of the major theoretical insights of Frederick Engels, later borne out by modern and contemporary anthropological research. It is only within the past, the last few thousand years, Engels argued, in the origins of the family, private property, and the state, that people around the globe began to organize into family units. Previously, humans had no ability to produce and store a surplus. 
without a surplus that might be hoarded and controlled, there was no basis for inequality and no reason, no wealth to be inherited, for instance, for the division of people into families. Instead, people were organized into large clans with collective production, child rearing, and distribution of resources. Although pre-class societies had a division of labor between men and women, women were able to combine reproductive and productive labor with no sharp line dividing the two. More, since women were as or even more central to producing sustenance for the group, there's no evidence of the systematic sexism that we find later and today. In some societies, elder women appear to have enjoyed a higher status than men. Then came the development of the plow, the domestication of cattle. These made it possible for human beings to accumulate a surplus, and with the surplus came the first appearance of social classes, those who controlled the surplus, those who did not, along with the growing need for a way to transmit what became wealth from one generation to the next. Here we find the genesis of the nuclear family, and monogamous, for women that is, marriage. Just as there was an economic basis for the rise of the family, so too was there an economic basis for the subordination of women within families. As agriculture grew increasingly productive, women were increasingly separated from spheres of production. Farming methods were no longer easily compatible with pregnancy, nursing, and child rearing. Engels explains, quote, in the old communistic household, which comprised many couples and their children, the task entrusted to the women of managing the household was as much a public and socially necessary industry as the procur procuring of food by men. And as I mentioned earlier, later anthropological evidence will show that women frequently procured mu as much and sometimes most of, of the food. Uh, in a monogamous family, a change came. Household management lost its public character. It no longer concerned society. It became a private service. The wife became the head servant, excluded from all participation in social production." End quote. Additionally, Sharon Smith notes, agricultural society sought larger and larger families, more hands to produce an even greater surplus, in contrast with hunter-gatherer societies that had sought to limit family size. Um, Smith writes, the old communal forms of organization weren't transformed overnight nor were they transformed uniformly from one society to the next, but they were transformed, supplanted by the extended patriarchal family and then the even more narrowly defined nuclear family. Engels writes, quote, monogamous marriage comes on the scene as the subjugation of one sex by the other. It announces a struggle between the sexes unknown throughout the whole previous prehistoric period. It opens up the period that has lasted until today, in which every step forward is also relatively a step backwards, in which prosperity and development for some is won through the misery and frustration of others." End quote. But at this point, Engels also believed that the modern family was very possibly about to undergo another profound transformation, one that would mark not the world historic defeat of women, which is how he summed up the advent of monogamous marriage and the establishment of exclusive patrimony, but instead women's liberation. What Engels was witnessing was how industrial capitalism had rapidly and brutally uprooted peasant families from their land and dispossessed artisans of their tools forcing what would become the industrial working class into urban centers where all members, women and children, as well as men, sold their labor for 14, 16, and even more hours a day. Thus, wrote Ingalls, the social order makes family life almost impossible for the worker. 
Together, Marx and Engels denounced the bourgeois claptrap about the family and education. They argued that by the action of modern industry, all the family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder, and their children are transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor. But Engels also hoped that as large-scale industry took the wife out of the home, onto the labor market, and into the factory, there would disappear in proletarian households the basis for any kind of male supremacy. Yes, capitalism was producing ghastly immiseration, especially for immigrant and black wage workers, and for all workers in the many times of economic bust. But capitalism was also releasing growing numbers of women from the bondage of the home, and both men and women from the close surveillance of farm and village life. It brought the potential for greater freedom of personal development, including, as John D'Amelio writes, the development of gay and lesbian identities. Hence Engel's assertion that the first condition for the liberation of the wife is to bring the whole female sex back into public industry a sentiment widely echoed by women in, the, in early labor movements. For instance, a woman member of the Industrial Workers of the World wrote, quote, the best thing that ever happened to a woman was when she was compelled to leave the narrow limits of the home and enter into the industrial life of the world. This is the only road to our freedom, and to be free, there is not anything more to be desired than that. So we will stay in the factory mill or store and organize with you in the IWW for ownership of the industries so we can provide ourselves with decent homes. And then, if we marry you, it will chance to pay our bills." End quote. <laughs> but there was not to be, as we know now, a one-way progression for women from subjugation to full equality. Engels, writes Sharon Smith, had underestimated the degree to which capitalism would manage to integrate working class women into the labor force while maintaining their reproductive labor within the nuclear family unit. In fact, as Engels documented in the condition of the working class in England, the almost complete disintegration of working class family life in industrial centers had created for the capitalist class a crisis. The long, arduous hours of labor in factories and workrooms, combined with squalid conditions and meager food for once few hours of rest, was rapidly killing off workers. At particular risk, risk Engels noted, was the next generation of workers. Um, he writes, the death rate is kept so high chiefly by the heavy mortality among young children in the working class. The tender frame of a child is least able to withstand the unfavorable influences of an inferior lot in life. In Manchester, England, 57% of working class children died before their fifth year, compared with 20% among the children of the bourgeoisie. This high mortality rate was both a product of industrial capitalism and a threat to it. When human labor is too sick and weak to show up for a next day's work, and a shortage of workers drives the price of labor up, these cut into profits. So what to do? The French Revolution era argument was for progressive taxation on wealth to fund public provision for health care, old age and widows pensions, disability and education. Through the 19th and into the 20th century, it is for these basic public programs and a shorter workday that we find workers organizing into labor movements and radical parties. But the capitalist class had a different solution in mind, one that would safeguard its profits by ensuring that the current and next generation of workers would receive adequate care, but at little expense to itself. Their solution? Reassert the family, not just as the primary organizational unit for the middle and upper classes, but also for the working class. 
the bourgeois family model, which assumes a dependent woman whose primary function is to ensure the paternity of the inheritors of wealth, was imposed on workers, despite workers not having any wealth to pass on, and despite most working class women needing to do some kind of waged work on top of the unpaid domestic labor that was now being insisted upon as their natural womanly duty. Thus, alongside Malthusian thought, which preached the inevitability of misery's killing frost, and mid-century religious revivalism, which held that public programs were, as Emerson put it, alms for sots, because the elderly and sick weren't good candidates for salvation anyway, we find the seemingly kinder, gentler ideology of domesticity. It was a family values campaign for a strict division between the roles and spheres of men and women. Men, rugged, self-reliant, independent, were assigned to the public realm of self-seeking competition, whether against other capitalists in pursuit of profits or against other workers in the pursuit of jobs. Women were consigned to the private realm of hearth and home, where they were to create a haven from the pitiless world beyond their doors and ensure the continuation of a reliable, healthy enough labor force. And so at the moment when throughout Europe and increasingly in the United States, workers were organizing and agitating for public provision, capitalism returned a privatized response. It's up to the nuclear family with the wife as head servant within it to tend to human needs. Ticity would impose on the potential for women's emancipation. Quote, if she carries out her duties in the private service of her family, she remains excluded from public production and unable to earn. And if she wants to take part in public production and earn independently, she cannot carry out family duties. And the wife's position in the factory is the position of women in all branches of business, right up to medicine and law, end quote. In actuality, more than seek to drive all women from the workforce, what these early family values campaigns aimed for, much like family values campaigns today, was to naturalize the idea that wherever it is we might find women, where they really belong is in the home. For working class women, there was established what's come to be known as the second shift. Following a day or night's work for wages outside the home comes a full shift of work without pay inside the home. Of course, middle class and wealthy women then, as now, could resolve this problem of double duties, at least partially, through purchasing the labor of other women for housekeeping and childcare. Because Victorian era reformers pushed for a family wage to be paid to men so that women could retreat into domestic bliss, some feminists have concluded that working class and ruling class men thus colluded to throw women out of the workforce. But many working class women strongly supported the idea of better wages for the men in their families. More, the capitalist class's ideological use of gender, as well as race, ethnicity, and skill categories to justify wage differentials served to suppress wages across the working class to the detriment of men and women together. Many feminists have also argued for addressing the double burden placed on women through urging men to step in and lend a hand with childcare and housework. But that solution, even though I'm hoping right now that my husband is at home cleaning the house, um, that solution doesn't address the real problem for working class women, men, and children, the lack of social supports and social responsibility for meeting people's and society's most fundamental requirements. As it happened, the family wage did not provide adequate support to many working class families, and so women stayed in the workforce, but at even lower wages paid by employers who claimed these women were working only for pin money or until they found husbands. 
Mimi Abramovitz observes that 20% of US women at the turn of the 20th century worked for wages outside the home. This percentage would easily double if we added to this those who took in sewing, laundry, and borders so as to make family ends meet. The number of child laborers increased in the early decades of the US 20th century. Most children not heading now out into factories, but staying at home in tenement workshops where they produce clothing or cigars. Writes Stephanie Kuntz, quote, for every 19th century middle-class family that protected its wife and child within the family circle, there was an Irish or German girl scrubbing floors in that middle-class home, a Welsh boy mining coal to keep the home-baked goodies warm, a black girl doing the family laundry, a black mother and child picking cotton to be made into clothes for the family, and a Jewish or Italian daughter in a sweatshop making ladies' dresses or artificial flowers for the family to purchase. The labor of women and children was integral to the 19th, late 19th century economy, just as today's US economy depends on the labor of women and undocumented workers. With family values and anti-immigrant campaigns not serving to eliminate these workers, but to reduce their costs and their public rights. Also as it happened, people did not, through the 19th century and into the 20th, European workers sought and won some of the public rights and provisions, national health care, pensions, that capitalism wanted to leave up to the family. Especially in Russia, following the 1917 workers' revolution, we find astounding advances, equal pay for equal work, free childcare, four months paid maternity leave before and after childbirth, the right to free hospital-provided abortion, the abolition of laws criminalizing homosexuality, and despite the conditions of extreme privation, the launching of socialized restaurants, laundries, and nursing, and nurseries in an effort to release women from, as Lenin put it, the petty housework that crushes, strangles, stultifies, and degrades. You can just imagine what Lenin would have said about the 1950s United States, where despite all manner of labor-saving devices, the number of hours women spent on housework actually increased thanks to the revived cult of domesticity. But in the United States, too, we find over the past 150 years contradictions and crises fueling radical movements. These movements dismantled slavery and Jim Crow, both of which um, had been upheld in the name of women's purity and patriarchal family values. These movements won and expanded some welfare and health care rights, for instance, what became aid to families with dependent children in the Social Security Act of 1935 and the creation of Medicare and Medicaid by the mid-1960s. These movements also struck blows to Father Knows Best family ideology by winning many, many public rights for women and also for teen girls, the right to seek an abortion, for Latina and black women, the right not to be sterilized by the state, for women and racial minorities, affirmative action and equal opportunity rights to job, housing, and education, and for LGBT people, the right to be out without getting beat up by the cops. All of these rights were won by deprivatizing people's needs and also by deprivatizing and delegitimizing discrimination and repression. In the past 30 years, though, we've also suffered a mighty backlash and a rollback of many of the progressive gains that's been carried out through a reassertion of, no surprise, traditional family values. For instance, the 1996 bill repealing welfare ushered through Congress by the thrice-married Newt Gingrich and signed into law by the fidelity-challenged Bill Clinton <laughs> begins like this, quote, 
The Congress makes the following findings. One, marriage is the foundation of a successful society. Two, marriage is an essential institution of a successful society which promotes the interests of children. Three, promotion of responsible fatherhood and motherhood is integral to successful child rearing and the well-being of children, end quote. Now Congress knows that half of all children live at some point with a single parent. They certainly know from their own track records that half of all marriages end in divorce. I think that many are aware that women can live and support children independently of men and could do so even better with improvements in pay equity and in um, workers' pay and benefits overall. And some, I'm sure, have an inkling that yes, gay, lesbian, and transgender couples can and do form happy unions and are raising happy, well-adjusted children who might be even more so if not for the systematic discrimination against their parents. So why all of this reality-denying rhetoric? As Jen Rush points out, politicians and the system they represent stand to benefit enormously from the most recent family values backlash with Social Security Act of 1935 Congress and Clinton were answering corporate America's desire for a cheap service workforce. It's a great contradiction of this bill carried out in the name of strengthening American families and protecting women and children that all of its provisions have actually made it just about impossible for millions of women to adequately care for their children. By insisting on the family as foundational and piously directing people to take more personal responsibility, such legislation scapegoats poor women. They ought to have gotten into or stayed within and everyone should have a planned family. And it justifies gutting social programs. Today, with the global economic crisis, we can expect to hear even more arguments for families to pick up the slack. In fact, the latest family ideal seems to be the Waltons. But rather than not agreement with the Depression-era Muncie, Indiana newspaper that editorialized, many a family that has lost its car has found its soul. We should push aside nostalgic distortions and consider what 1930s American family life and life today may really share in common. Everywhere, the evidence of the nuclear family's inability to meet the needs of society, from the catastrophe of Katrina after the levees broke, to the unrelenting demands of everyday life for sandwich generation women like my mother. She is 70 years old and devotes her days to juggling care for others, including her 99-year-old mother and her grandchildren, plus now a great-granddaughter, whose parents have been unable to make ends meet, uh, who, whose parents have been <coughs> able to make ends meet only through the free childcare that she's provided. It would be hard for these members of my family to have a plan that doesn't depend on my mother's unwaged labor. And though my mother frequently dreams of running away, Montana, a place she's never been, is where she says she's going. Um, <laughs> she doesn't because there isn't anything else in place to do this caretaking. Now as socialists, we can't just say, abolish the family. Um, even following the Russian Revolution, there was no such decree. Good dialectical thinkers like Trotsky counseled instead immediate practical remedies for the burdens of privatized reproduction, like establishing common kitchens, but especially he counseled local groups to form and discuss the problems of daily life and experiment with new forms of life and cooperative units that might now be possible. But what can we do in our times? These aren't revolutionary times, of course, but they are fraught with contradiction. The same officials who proclaim family values applaud ICE raids tearing immigrant families apart. 
and our moment is also infused with high expectation. Witness the passage of gay marriage laws and rulings in, now I've been out of the country for the past um, four weeks and I have six states and counting, are we up to seven yet? Anyway, okay, six, we're, we're moving, okay, six states and counting. So what can we do? We can underscore how much the suffering of the current recession comes from the privatization of needs within the family. We can examine how what has created, propped up, and is now depending on the family is the capitalist system, one in which employers pay workers a wage, until they're laid off, that is, but bear no responsibility for the social costs of maintaining the current and subsequent generations of workers. We can fight anew to shift the burdens being shouldered by families back to being shared collectively by society. And we can and need to carry out these fights on a class basis. Because while middle class LGBT couples will most certainly benefit, and because while middle and ruling class women also want to be able to control their reproduction, winning gay marriage and regaining so much of the ground lost and conceded on abortion would be enormous victories for the working class and enormous blows to the capitalist family ideology imposed to better exploit, subjugate, and divide workers. And finally, because it will ever be capitalism's drive to roll back the gains, steal back whatever crumbs we can win, we can also keep fighting for a complete socialization of production and distribution, not for profit, but for people's needs. But what will there be new, ask Engels, looking ahead to a time when we no longer live within an economic system that depends on the family to regulate and reproduce relations of inequality. I'll end with Engel's response to that question. Quote, that will be answered when a new generation has grown up, a generation of men who never in their lives have known what it is to buy a woman's surrender with money or other social instrument of power, a generation of women who have never known what it is to give themselves to a man from any considerations than real love or to refuse to give themselves to their love or refuse to give themselves to their lover from the fear of economic consequences. When these people are in the world, they will care precious little what anybody today thinks they ought to do. They will make their own practice and their corresponding public opinion about the practice of each individual, and that will be the end of it. Thanks. All right, thank you, Nancy. Um, we'll now start the discussion. Everyone should probably know how it goes now. Um, raise your hand if you have something to say or a question. Definitely get your question out there early. Um, I'll, I'll keep you down and I'll write you down and call on you in turn. And uh, I guess uh, there's a lot of people. We have plenty of time for discussion. But if, um, you know, let's try to keep it around three minutes. If I go like that, it means just please wrap up in the next 30 seconds. Yes, go ahead, please. Um, to what degree, we were sort of talking about this a bit yesterday, but I wanted to ask you to what degree you thought the um, pushing of the nuclear families in the, 50, in the 50s in particular represented uh, an attempted control for two reasons. One, the idea that most successful revolutions occur in cities, and it, it occurs because different classes of people get to mix and mingle, share ideas, and it tends to break down class walls where if you establish suburban communities, generally suburban communities were established on a class basis, meaning you have your middle class community, your wealthy suburban, and you have your poorer community, in which classes are rigidly divided and separated by 
highways. They're isolated from each other. And then even within these communities now, you suddenly have people surrounded by law, surrounded from each other, um, so that it's much easier to control these units because they are alienated and subdivided into cells to a greater degree than they would be in urban areas. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Noah from Madison. I was watching uh, something on TV, I can't remember. They were talking about, um, uh, I can't remember where, where it was, but like uh, a woman would have a child and the father um, didn't play an active role. It was, um, I can't remember where it was, but I was, I was going to ask, like, is like the, the nuclear family and like the pushing for that, is that strictly like a Western society or how capitalism in the West like uh, like try to, to form the family and and how how does capitalism in you know other other societies that um, maybe maybe capitalism didn't get there as soon like try to try to deal with these different kind of family structures. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm Paul from Providence. Um, actually, to take that up a little bit, and it's actually is integral to um, uh, what the speaker was, was mentioning regarding um, the privatization of the social functions of the family. Um, specifically, the, the example I'm thinking of is specifically in Lebanon and Palestine, and and it's it, it's unfortunate to make a generalization like this, and of course there's exceptions, but. Um, Essentially, the role of the family that you have is not, you know, this cause within a nuclear family, but what can we do as a quote-unquote traditional family network structure where you have extended families related by blood, by marriage, and that is actually the support network. Um, and, and, and that's kind of the main form of social organizing that you see in the, absent, in, in the absence of um, uh, public services provided by the state. And, and that's kind of the role that that takes up in specifically Lebanon and Palestine. Uh, go ahead. Um, I kind of wonder about this I don't know how to put it, this like magical moment when we started planting food in the ground and um, and how come at that point when there all of a sudden was the ability to make some sort of surplus how come the principles that had hitherto been running society got transformed why didn't the same principles um, weren't why weren't the same principles applied to the surplus as when there wasn't a surplus and um, and and why and I guess that's it. Thank you. Right here? Um, I guess I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what you were saying at the end of your talk about the future when we can envision, or I, I'm interested in um, envisioning what different sorts of structures might be in place for um, taking care of children, taking care of each other. I feel like um, as women, 
raised in the society and for me certainly I've really been sold a package of like marriage is going to be the safe <coughs> place for and and the idea and I, I've, I have broken it down enough in my own mind that I can see a lot of the shortcomings of what marriage would be but it's hard for me I haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk with people and envision what would the other alternatives be um, so that would be great to hear people have thoughts here, white shirt. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm Alex from Toledo. I actually come to this society. I, you know, to make the point, we don't really, you know, as Tracy uh, uh, said, we don't really know because anything, the the first generation, you know, workers revolt. We 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 finally do our thing, and we now have dictators with the proletariat and worker state, everything like that. Yeah. It's still going to have a lot of hangovers from capitalism. That's what we all know. That's what, what's what we're all reacting to. You know, I mean, we have socialist politics. Marx was a reaction to capitalism. You know, he came up with his ideas because he's surrounded by the developing capitalist world. Um, so it's going to be up to the people that don't have that to react to, to have much more of a freedom. But we do have some kind of tantalizing bits from the past. Uh, the Iroquois uh, Native Americans uh, in the northeastern United States. Um, the, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the, the group, but the group that was on Hispaniola when Columbus landed. And uh, the Spanish priests who also became the one that said, hey, we should import slaves from Africa, uh, and then later we can't find that, um, described their culture. Uh, it's an excellent description of it in Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States, uh, 1492 to the present. Uh, and he talks about how in their society, because things were equally shared and there wasn't this necessity for a breadwinner and stuff, which is all tied to the economics, uh, you know, marriage is safe because we don't have surplus is available and freely given, which is why it's important to have those things like the, the uh, social soup kitchens and, and you know, restaurants and childcare and things like that. What They had that already indigenously, and they described it so that they would make relationships, break relationships at will, nobody seemed to be really hurt or bothered by it, uh, men weren't abusive, there was, I mean, it's just this very tantalizing, very small uh, clue, but still took place in a highly densely populated area. Um, which also is it's nice to read that because it completely eradicates the myth that well this this is great but it can only happen in small hundred well no it took place in a very dense one of the most densely populated places on, on earth and they still seem to get uh, so I would suggest reading that and it's a we won't know exactly it won't be exactly like that but it shows us that it is quite possible for men and women to get along without some sort of economic reliance and certainly without rape and abuse and things like that. <clears throat> Um, the stack is open. Uh, we have quite a few questions on the floor. Please, if you think that you can answer them, raise your hand. Um, and then maybe uh, we can throw it back to Nancy at some point. Right here, please. Uh, I can take a stab at uh, this question from the front row out here. Um, so, I mean, the way you, your question was kind of framed, you were talking about like principles, and there were these ideas and principles that people were trying to live up to, in a sense that existed for thousands of years and then with the discovery or the development of the surplus, all of a sudden it changed and people decided to do things through it. But that's actually, it's, it, there was really little choice of any involved. It was about people out of desperation and hunger responding to dramatically changing physical conditions around them. And those physical conditions are interwoven with the social structure that they find themselves in that they grew up in and whatnot. And this, this like magic moment, as you put it, actually, and, and you know, that's interesting because it actually took like more than a thousand years. And I think that it's important to kind of understand, and if I'm not clear, people could 
straighten me out, because of course I have no knowledge of that. I've never read anything written by these guys, you know, ten thousand years ago. But uh, the thing is that there was there was a time for for hundreds for hundred thousand years or more of you know hunter gatherer society. Um, people have kind of described what that looked like, and then there was kind of this transitional period in a few small parts of the ec economy that they developed as horticultural. And it's not really agriculture, it's not really hunter-gatherer. What it is is they found grains and natural grasses that naturally grew in certain parts of the world during the transitional period when the ice was melted from the last ice age. And, and that's why we don't have this kind of climate cover today, really. Like that's part of it. And they, it was often in the Middle East, you know, with fertile crescent, you know, whatnot. And they could spend only a few weeks of the year harvesting often. And they'd have enough food, enough surplus for, for years to come. This went on for hundreds of years, the system, for a few people, not for most people. And during this time, they developed, there was some sexual differences that arose out of th this change in, in, in how people's food was gotten. And I think it's important to remember that you can have some sexual division of labor without that meaning inequality, social inequality. It's very important. One of the, um, one of the lessons you get from, from the Iroquois or other, other, other indigenous peoples is that often the women have a kind of veto power about decisions made by the entire group because they control part of acquiring the surplus. So they have a certain political power that equals during this period. Um, now, that, that period of, of that horticultural period came to an end when these, these grasses and grains that were natural they just found were less and less available. What they ended up doing is discovering, oh, when we spilled some of these seeds, it grew. So gee, why don't we just store some of that? And that was a very gradual process. That was not something they decided to do. It's something they had to respond to the fact that this thing that they had grown accustomed to, to acquiring was now harder and harder to get. They had to more and more control where it was planted, you know, irrigating it and, 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 and accumulating it, storing it, and then guarding it, and then someone's got to be in charge of guarding it, and now you're developing inequality, class differences. You know. Thank you. Uh, purple shirt, but not that one. Other purple shirt that raised their hand. Oh, no, gray sweater. Oh, you were purple shirt, sorry. Yeah. Hi, I'm Vera from Boston. Um, I wanted to just take up what Amanda said at the front about, um, I think the question is what is the role of the family under capitalism? Like what does it function? Why, why do we have families? Because we have families that are, you know, on the one hand seen as they're supposed to be our support networks, um, the love, but most often the like, you know, scenes of huge tensions and often I want to get away from my family, you know, so what is the role which why we have families? I think one of the big things is that in a society that we live in right now, we have no national daycare, no national health care. So the family unit becomes all of those social services. It becomes like I think the the speaker was saying about your mom, I think is what most people face right now, which is we have to instead of being able to actually have daycare centers where we can um, where we can do our kids, we have to depend on our family members. And often, I mean, the whole thing around marriage, often people are getting married for economic reasons because they can't afford to live off of one income. And so, you know, people are, like most, uh, not, I, I, you know, there is the marriage of love, but most people are married for economic reasons and able to share health care rights. 
being able to get the benefits of your partner if your partner even has um, you know those benefit rights and even if any of you can't get married at all and can't get those kind of rights. So I, I think the, the point is is if we were to transform society where we could actually fight for having national health care, for having national daycare centers, we wouldn't have to live in these families, you know, we wouldn't have to be confined in, you know, living with our parents until we're much older if we didn't want to do that. We would have more choices, I think, about how um, how to live our lives. I think we would have the choice of, you know, instead of working, you know, taking whatever job pays the best, you know, that's not what you want to do, you would have the choice of working in a kind of job that you might, you know, that because all jobs could, you know, to divert. And point, you're getting a little vague right now. But I, and I want someone to actually, like, aid me in making this argument because I want to know how to make this argument better. Um, but I, I think the, I think the basis of it is that um, you, you just don't have that many choices. And so often I think it becomes that pressure of like, you know, find a partner, live with that partner, you know, and then be able to raise those children and you can't depend on anyone else. Um, there is no societal means, there's no national, you know, daycare centers where you can drop your kids off. Um, and so it then becomes the responsibility of the family and we like that. And you think about how much money they're saving right now. Um, and I love the movie Sicko, if you haven't seen it by Michael Moore. I mean, it's such great comparisons of what American women have to face. Um, you know, even compared to some of the social democracies, social democratic countries, which are even not, you know, ideal, but like they're so much better where we are right now. Like to have that image in Sicko, the woman in France who has, you know, this government sponsored person to come and help, you know, the mom take care, like, of, of the laundry and all that stuff while she's raising a kid, that's amazing to even think about that. Um, and those are the kind of alternatives that I think we should be fighting for. Um, and, and putting the pressure on the government to be spending more money on actually allowing us to, you know, give us national health care so we don't have to, we don't have to marry just for health care start thinking outside of that box and we are so accustomed to it. Um, I think just to sort of build and develop that family more, I think it's important to distinguish between the family as a social unit under capitalism and as an economic unit under capitalism. As a social unit, the family function family functions as sort of, you know, people can talk about it, the idea of a haven and a heartless world, comfort, solidarity, companionship to break out of like the atomized isolation um, that people feel. And I think in any society, people are gonna look to form meaningful human relationships with other people. And the question is what form those meaningful human relationships take. And unfortunately in our society, the social sort of form or role of the family is um, conditioned by the economic role that the family plays, the need for the privatized reproduction of the labor force, which by the way, whether it's extended kin networks, kinship networks, or whether it's like a two-child nuclear family in the United States, it's still privatized 
reproduction, that then conditions the ideological role that the family plays in our society. So the idea of like, you know, meaningful human relationships is completely funneled in this incredibly narrow idea of the heterosexual couple who's married with the two kids. And so I think there's a couple things to say about that. One is that, that it's profoundly contradictory because people look to form those relationships, they look to form families managing. And first of all, more than 50% of pregnancies in this country are women who are unwed um, nowadays. Like the whole idea of nuclear families just a myth. You also have domestic violence within the family, you have rape within the family, you have the fact that we go to comfort one another, but society is so messed up that people turn inward on one another and all the pressure of society explodes um, within the family and so can't provide um, that haven. And so I think you have to begin to talk about how do you get rid of the economic function that the family plays under capitalism to begin to think about different ways of structuring the order of human relations. The second point I just want to make is that I think the importance of looking back to some of the pre-class society ways in which things were organized and the role that women played in those pre-class societies is to say that things have changed over time and women did not always have, the family didn't always look the way it did and women weren't always institutionally oppressed in the same kind of way. However, I were not for a reversion to that, into primitive communism. Capitalism, think about capitalism, it actually provides the conditions for full women's liberation. We can control our own bodies. That wasn't our reproductive technology. That didn't exist in Iroquois society. You know what I mean? We can get rid of so much of the drudgery of housework. We can begin to think about how to raise children in different ways. We can socialize all sorts of different things. And all of this has opened up. I mean, the last 50 years, part of the women's liberation movement and capitalism did is like women had access to education, we had access to jobs on a mass scale, women entered the workforce, and there was this whole idea that maybe we can be free, maybe we can be equal. That was the promise of the women's liberation movement. And now I think what we've seen happen is that that has been proven to not take place because we're still operating within the confines of the capitalist system, we still have the double duty of work outside the home and then within the home, the second shift, the second role, and that's producing massive crushing and alienation and frustration for people. And I think that we have to say the conditions are there, they've been provided, and then we need to take a collective um, role that women can play as part of a mass working class struggle with other men, with other women, and actually begin to achieve a different kind of society where we can take the promise of liberation and actually make it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, a, a lot of what I was going to say just got said, and like so much better than I would have said it. So thank you. <laughs> um, so I'll just add that um, I actually think that uh, that part of what um, is going on with um, the idea that uh, that the family is constructed and that gay marriage has really put out there that, that there's a, like this myth that um, that that's the only um, structure that's that's available that's that's um, that's going to work. Um, you know, the, the next conclusion and, and the sort of fear-mongering behind that is that, oh no, now we're going to have polygamy, mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and where, where will it stop? <laughs> you know, it's, oh my, people can, Ducks. you know, and so that question, I feel like, gives it a lot of people's fears about if the family is a social site where you find comfort and security and all of this, and suddenly it's like, if we vote for gay marriage or we support that, the one place that I find comfort and security is, n is now in question. It's like a really psychologically difficult thing. I think it, it's used to win people with some very reactionary ideas that clearly are rooted in people's fear of that insecurity of not having the one place that under capitalism they feel like it's not all commodified. Um, so I think that the struggle for gay marriage, I mean, I think that the anxiety behind that of, you know, from a lot of people actually does come from the real alternative that it presents. 
to this idea that the nuclear family is the only arrangement that um, that can work for people. So, um, so I think that, that you know, it, on, a, on the one hand, it means you know, winning uh, civil rights for, for queer couples and their families, but also presenting that alternative, like you were asking about, you know, what are the alternative structures? And, oh, if we can have queer couples, um, you know, raising families, what other kinds of family arrangements might be possible? And then, you know, you sort of break out of the idea that the nuclear family is this natural site where all good things happen, and if we, you know, somehow have other alternatives, everything's going to fall apart. Hi, I'm Jeffrey from Memphis. Um, first, thank you very much. Wonderful, wonderful talk. And um, what I saw a bit ago was a gap in to, between looking at the way the family functions under capitalism and also, uh, via your quote, how it will look when a, we're living in, in a social society. And to me, that seems to have opened up a gap uh, that you began to address, and I'm really grateful that you did, about the family as well as the factory as a site for revolutionary action, doing work there and thinking now there for possibilities too, in the same way that like uh, gay marriage is a possible new kinship structure that begins to like flaw a, like, a, you know, like a narrow ideological frame about what the family is and still function, then it opens up possibilities for uh, the family today, not just organizing other places, but to think revolutionary action in the home as, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if that's a, I mean, that seems to be a possibility with nothing that I'm wondering if others see that as well, because I was a bit worried about like, well, when we all achieve socialism, then we'll have the conditions for an equal, uh, equal kinship structure. Is there an opportunity to be struggling on that, in that sphere as well? Uh, in the back. Oh, okay. um, I just want to go back to the first question. I think it was a question or a comment about the 1950s and sort of where the um, return to domestication or domesticity uh, came from. And I, I mean, I thought it sort of got into Nancy's talk and um, from my own impressions. But to me, it was more of a backlash against the progress that had been made during the 1940s and a lot of the freeing up of women um, to actually go into the workforce make a wage of their own and be free from the family structure or at least part of the family structure they were sort of um, put into previously. And to a lot of capitalism, to the ruling class in this country, that was pretty scary for them for you know the men to come back from World War II and to look at a whole new social landscape where women all of a sudden were saying, well, why can't I stay in this position? You know, I have these new expectations. And I think the 1950s was worth, you know, an attempt by the ruling class to um, have a return to what had existed before World War II. Um, the other thing that I want to say is that, and I think that points out too, the contradictory elements of capitalism and the family, where in one way they want to um, keep the basic structure of the family intact and keep these conservative goals um, going, but at the same time they need labor of women in order to, and especially in times of economic crisis or in times of economic downturn, they need the role of women's labor in order to function as a capitalist society. So I think they're constantly dealing with this dynamic where on the one hand they're you know, trying to keep the family in its traditional structure, but at the same time to say too is that another good example, although it's a very 
it lasted for a very short time period, but was the Russian Revolution. Um, and you often hear like the Russian Revolution, you know, the first time legalized abortion and these other social reforms. But I think this book, and I'll talk about more of the books later, but um, Women in the Family by Leon Trotsky, he takes on the question of, okay, we have a revolution, we've um, started to under, undermine or destroy the economic relations that exist on the capitalism, but what do we do with the old social reforms, like family? And so he talks about, um, and the Russian Revolution was plagued by the problem of economic scarcity, basically, and that was one of the things that held them back from really taking on the question as much as they should have. Um, but he talks about, um, you know, what needs to happen in his mind. It's the socialization of family, socialization of family housekeeping and public education of children are unthinkable without a market improvement of economics. Uh, we need more social economic forms. Only, um, okay, so washing must be done by public laundry, catering by public restaurants, sewing by public workshop. Children must be educated by good public teachers who have a re real vocation for their work. Um, then the bond between husband and wife will be freed from everything external and accidental, and the one um, the one will cease to absorb the life of the other. Genuine equality will at last be established. The bond will depend on mutual attachment, and on that account particularly will require inner stability. So relationships are actually formed based on. Also, again, we're going. <laughs> but I just want to say, I mean, if you look at the Russian Revolution, the question that they raised in 1917, um, before a lot of the conversations in revolutionary lives. Um, began around women's equality. I think you know the the examples there, and for us as socialists in the United States, the capabilities of you know are even more. Thank you. Uh, Dark blue top. Yeah. Uh, Jill Smith from Harvard University. Um, yeah, I think the uh, the question about what is to be done now, how to raise this uh, issue, and um, I think the uh, GLBT people's argument for um, a different kind of family that is based on affection um, and caring makes a lot of sense. But the other area is to talk about children um, because the central contradiction of capitalism is that um, it wishes to pass on the work of childcare and all of that to the family. At the same time, it keeps eroding the ability of the family to do that because that's how you make profit is you know, you, you privatize it, but at the same time, um, you make it harder and harder for the family to take care of uh, children. And in that way, I think uh, socialists need to um, put children at the, the center of the movement. And, you know, even the word proletariat comes from prolicide, which is uh, the act of uh, killing one's children. And so the word proletariat means a class that uh, that sacrifices its children in the service of the state. And so we have that in, in, in our history, I think. Um, and that that's all I want to say. Thank you. Uh, Leah? Okay. Sorry, um, Yeah, I think this is a good discussion. I've been thinking a lot about it lately because of the gay marriage movement and every single reactionary group that's out there against gay marriage happens to have family in their name. It's like focus on the family, family first, like every single right-wing group. I think it has raised questions for a lot of people of why is the right-wing in particular so like reliant on this, or so in particular, I think, for women's um, oppression. Because I, I, I agree that I'm, you know, obviously with this idea about the, the role of the privatized family plays under capitalism, because they actually don't want to socialize the functions that they can kind of get um, for free. But it's also because they want to 
make money off of certain other social functions like the healthcare industry. There's all kinds of other requirements like social services that we actually would fight for to be free that capitalism wants to sort of continue um, to make a profit over. And the other role I think sort of that capitalism plays in terms of how the family is around the question of, of alienation. The fact that what we produce and what makes us human actually gets completely stolen from us and is completely out of our control. And that has profound impact on the kinds of relationships that we have, the kind of economic relationships we're sort of forced um, to form. But I also think that that's really sort of contradictory and people have spoken um, about that. And I think that kind of goes into the question about um, sort of can we, can we look to the family as the center then of some kind of more revolutionary action or some kind of, because um, I think at times, I think that the reality is that if we're locating women's oppression in, in the sort of the economic unit of the family, I think that we have to have a collective challenge to capitalism in order to rethink and renew the kinds of relationships that we sort of envision types of families um, that we want to form. And I think when you've seen the family sort of break down and begin anew, our times when collective struggle has been posed to capitalism. So even you know the example of women entering the workforce, that was sort of a way in which sort of people were sort of re like had to rethink women's role in society, women's role in the family. The Russian Revolution, people, I don't think we actually have it in Haymarket, people should have Marxist.org read Alexander Kolotai's Sexual Relations and the Class Struggle, who talks about sort of in a revolutionary moment. She was writing during the Russian Revolution when those kind of economic, <coughs> when the economic order was being broken down, and began to think about what could begin sort of anew um, in terms of families. And I, I agree that about the question of gay marriage is a central one, because it is a fight, it is a class fight, a collective fight, um, for the kind of economic benefits that come through um, marriage, healthcare, the right to visit your partner, et cetera. But it also is a fight about sort of a, a sense of dignity and a sense of validation about the, what kinds of families that we choose to form, the people that we choose to love, and having some kind of choice over that. But I think if we're going to win gay marriage, it's not going to be about sort of me forming the kind of relationship I would hope to vision in a social society, but it's going to take kind of a collective fight and a class struggle to actually you know, break down the sort of image of a family that currently sort of inhibits so much of our sort of daily life. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was completely just had a quick, some uh, thoughts on this. Um, so, like in the fifties, we had the the, the real hyper formation and, and uh, um, uh, propaganda around the, the especially the white nuclear family, and see the, the racism inherent in that, and the fact that like the, the typical American family is towards white and uh, mom, dad, two and a half kids, and at that time, they imagine how many families. You know whatnot, but um, with the, I work for the Social Security Administration, and one of the uh, programs that we we run administers supplemental security income, which is really one of the last welfare that's out there. Um, and there's there seems to be these um, punishments for people that actually do uh, go into the, the typical. You know, we, we talk about you know the, the ruling class of poverty, all these single mothers, and how horrible that is. But yet, when they get on programs like SSI or Medicaid or food stamps or whatnot. If, if they get married, uh, these benefits can oftentimes be drastically reduced, if not completely taken away. And it just seems like uh, it's a contradiction. But you know, there are a lot of contradictions in capitalism that are just kind of there. Some of them seem to have a purpose. And I just uh, I could never quite figure. I could never get my head around what sense that made in, in the 60s when we started setting up these social state networks that, for impoverished people, cut your legs off from beneath you, um, and it still goes on to this day. If there's anybody has any thoughts or anything. Because obviously it predominantly affects African Americans and single women since they're disproportionately impoverished. Thank you. Um, we I have a few people left on the list, three or four, and uh, we're nearing the end of our time. So get your hands up there; it's your last opportunity. Uh, red shirt in the back. <coughs> um, well, one of the things that I'm thinking about 
lately is the school like argument that you know having um, having a child is their individual responsibility and their individual choice. You know, like if you you know chose to have a child and you don't have the means to um, uh, to take care of them or whatever, that is your you know your fault. You should have planned better. You should have so on and so forth. And um, it's frustrating to me because it's like when you think about obviously on an individual level, it's your choice whether or not you have an abortion or a child, of course. But on a societal level, like our species is sort of produced, and why is it that we don't take that process as a social process? Um, and I think it's really frustrating, you know, because it's like you know, here, you know, people have mentioned you'll pay paternity, you'll pay child, you know, child care and stuff like that. And those costs are enormous. And it's you know, it's, to me, it's like the biggest hypocrisy of the family values crusaders because it's like they don't actually care about the families that they so-called, you know, you know that they uh, pretend to, to care about. They don't care about the children that, you know, um, they don't care about the children, they don't care about um, the parents. And it's just a couple of things that, you know, one of the things that came up in the news lately, which is just like horrifying to me, there's been this like slight increase lately of um, parents who accidentally leave their kids in their cars. But um, like people who uh, you know, rush into work, you know, probably very sleep deprived, um, go to the training, get up in the community, go back to the daycare, and um, these children have died. And it's not like, you know, an epidemic or whatever, but it's a slight increase. And it's like, well, that has to do with the economic, the economic crisis and the economic climate right now. And um, another, just on a personal level, like I have my, I'm really a, a step brother, but like a, a very, close uh, family friend of mine several years ago committed suicide. And there, there's no doubt in my mind it had to do with the fact that he had um, an autistic son who was severely autistic and his family couldn't, you know, couldn't deal with it. And I would work with his second child and started having the injury and the fear that his second child didn't have autism. And, you know, and it's like, why would that child, you know, like he, they had to move to this like more rich suburb or whatever because they had a better education system and they could afford that. You know, it's like his life was compounded by these problems and his wife's as well, obviously. And it's like he ended up taking his life out of, you know, going into a, you know, a, a, a completely depressive state. And it's like, that was, you know, I blame the system for that because it's like, you know, why was it out just him and his family? You know, and it's like,
capitalism had to do that because they needed women on a mass scale in the workforce. And so part of the thing about the 1950s, the cult of domesticity is like, don't get used to that. Like it was a it was a very conscious force back into the home. And it's also interesting to you know that that was also when they began to really reimpose um, abortion laws. Abortion had been illegal, but it had been sort of um, tasked approval or whatever. What I recently have to say very clearly is just that I think that, so we can do that stuff. I think the question of like the family as a site of social struggle, I think the issues of the family are a site of social struggle, but I think that we have to be careful not to sort of like look inward and some people see it as kind of like there's a system, you know what I mean, and exploitation sort of governs that, and then there's the home where women are oppressed and men sort of play an oppressive role within the home, and pits working class men and women against one another. The best example that I can think of right now is tied to some of what you were saying, is women who um, are divorced and are taking care of their kids and have to go on welfare because they're broke or whatever, and they force you to go after the dads for child support payments. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these dads are making minimum wage and stuff like that, and so you hear this like, deadbeat dads, not taking responsibility, you know, Father's Day is tomorrow, I'm sure mom's gonna be making a speech about how dads need to take responsibility today. Okay, so, you know, he needs to take responsibility, and so it pits people who should be allies in the struggle against one another. So I think we just have to be really careful to reject that, which is not to say we just wait for the revolution to begin to change, um, we wait for the revolution to begin to change things, there's concrete reforms we can fight for now, full health care you know, socialized daycare, socialized medicine, equal pay for equal work, a 30-hour work week so that men and women could actually enjoy time with their families and have social lives and all the rest of that. So we're not making an argument that just we, you know what I mean, for the revolution, we can actually begin to struggle right now. The question of who benefits with the power to struggle and on what basis we fight, I think, are, are very critical. Uh, Navid? I just have uh, one brief question. Uh, someone else would, would address it, but um, someone raised the argument that uh, under capitalism, uh, women made significant advances uh, they were allowed into the workforce. And uh, just really, I don't want to uh, side sidetrack the conversation, but I just want to point out that those advances were made uh, on the backs of and at the benefit of third world labor and also um, uh, the working classes here in the U.S. So it shouldn't be too um, too much of a joyous thing that when we were led into the ruling class and into the bourgeoisie. And our final speaker, Turquoise. Um, thanks for responding. I don't quite feel like I understand how, I, mean, I think it was contradictory when women entered the workforce, but to say it came at the expense of social workers I think is really well, in, incorrect, and I don't understand that. Do you want to explain that? Do you mean boss? And so is Stephanie Kuntz. That's Stephanie Kuntz's point. <laughs> <laughs>
including having a family, including doing things that you know um, go outside the bounds of the nuclear family because those are fulfilling and emotionally satisfying. But I think that the majority of those alternatives are pursued self-consciously by people who have leisure and resources. To be totally honest, and if you look at like the there's a lot of there's culture around like co-housing and all these things. And it's funny because a lot of things that they recommend are things that poor people do out of necessity. To be totally honest, like when you know people live multi-generational homes, a lot of childcare is provided by extended family, um, co-sleeping. I mean, that's what poor people do. I mean, cause you, and it's it's I think I think that's a great you know that's a great um, a great thing to do in terms of childcare. But it's like it's part of a reaction to the very sterile nuclear um, model that's out there. But I just think we shouldn't. Um, I don't think we should just settle for trying to hold on to a little bit more of our humanity versus actually putting an open assault on capitalism, mm -hmm. which can only be done in um, the workplace and in the social sphere. And it's sad that I mean, women have been edged out of the social sphere mm -hmm. systematically, and we yeah. need to reassert ourselves yeah. in the social sphere and be the leadership in the working class and be the leadership in the social movement and take our rightful place. And not limit ourselves to revolutionizing our, you know, have, you know, having long, you know, I'm not against long discussions about your relationship and your sexuality with your partner or whatever, but that can't be the end all, <laughs> be all, because, you know, Obama's, the, the bombing of Afghanistan is going to continue, and the assault on Head Start is going to continue, and all those things are going to continue. And we need to, we need to raise our sights in terms of what revolutionizing social relations would mean and see that as a collective. Um, process that we are, full, you know, front and center in with no, um, no whole heart. And I think that it, it's, I think that experimenting and people trying to find more um, rational ways um, to pursue relationships and raise children, that's all fantastic. But you know, the minority of people are going to have access to that under capitalism, um, and the pressures that are coming down, all the, the ideological assault of the rhetoric around the family needs to have a political, public response. Because we've given up far too much ground on this. The fact that young women support abortion less than the generation, the second wave feminists, is a horrible, horrible thing, and that is our task to keep on. Um, and I think that we need to see that um, as a you know, political and social struggle um, to, to win in our generation. Okay, um, I'm going to give it back to Nancy to wrap up, but first I want to do the announcements. Okay, so, we, okay. so Haymarket has an announcement in the back. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to point out a few different books, you know, raise all of our political education. Um, one is Myths of Male Dominance, and I think the question of, um, you know, is women's oppression natural, is it human nature, is something that's always going to exist in our society, is really taken up in this. And um, the author goes into um, the works of angles and talks about the question of whether um, this is something that's based on capitalism or not. Um, also, Women in Socialism by Sharon Smith is a really good approach to the question of women's oppression um, from a socialist perspective. Also, branding of sexuality in socialism for the first time at this conference. And if you like what Jen said, maybe you don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you want to emphasize it, but you should uh, check out her awesome article in ISR 38 called Turning Back the Clock. It raised a lot of these different questions that we've also been talking about. So you should come back here, check them out at the end. Uh, my credit card slips, cash, checks. Take it. Take it. I don't take it anymore. Um, and just a few other more general announcements. Uh, first of all, there have been a number of schedule changes, so um, you should check the, there's a board down here in the corner, you can check to see what has changed before <coughs> you go. 
Um, those interested in working on a network to defend academic freedom in universities, uh, please meet in the lobby at the lunch break. That's just a, a change, I think, in where you're meeting. Um, and then uh, if you are a smoker, please don't smoke outside the front of the building, but smoke by the pool. And, um, wow. and finally, um, uh, let's see, uh, as people have probably heard, there are several neo-Nazi groups planning to protest the conference this afternoon. Um, and so, uh, you know, the organizing committee has a plan to deal with this. We don't need any sort of independent action. The main goal is to not allow them to disturb our conference. So, um, you know, if you see anything, I guess it's important to report it, but um, don't, don't do it on your own. Um, that's it. Um, this was, a, this was a, a great discussion, and I'm not going to try to come in on all of the points and questions because I, I, I feel like the, the, the discussion really, you know, various, various people um, addressed, developed um, questions in all kinds of, of great ways. Um, but I did want to say just, just briefly on the, um, on the opening, one of the opening questions from, from, from Lionel about the, about the suburbs. I, um, I, I don't want to go into, and I also couldn't. I don't know enough about like kind of all of the economic and and um, and and social motivations for the, for the for the um, for the 1950s suburbanization of 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 the U.S. Um, I don't think that there's a single government document that says we need to do this for social control. But certainly there are all kinds of ways in which the 50s are about, and you know, uh, and and this gets started to be set in motion by the end of the 1930s. To you know, clamp down on the radical labor movement to get women um, out of the factories, back into the homes, or at least change their ideas about what they should have if they if they are out uh, out working, and to absolutely um, re-enforce and intensify Jim Crow segregation. But one of the effects of um, of the um, of the um, um, spreading suburbia, which was also um, Kuntz points out in her book, subsidized by. Um, you know, so the, so the highway, you know, that you know, that's when you get all of the major um, highway um, systems and, and construction. That the town that I grew up in, in central Ohio, this little industrial town of at the time of about five thousand people, had like three outer belts around it. It's like the most incredibly complicated for this, you know, what seems like a little town, but you know, but it was anyway. Um, but um, but what that but what the the creation of the suburbs did just after the period when large numbers of African Americans had found for the first time some jobs and, and um, enfranchisement within the urban center. So what I described as the, 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 um, the post-war boom turning bust by the mid-70s, that process actually started much earlier in urban centers like Detroit um, and um, Cleveland and, and so forth and, and, um, and, and, and hit African American workers um, much, much sooner. Um, than than um, than the working class as, as a whole by the um, by the early to mid 1970s, um, the um, you know I mean I think overall what reading um, Engels um, um, the the origins of of the family um, the myths of male dominance um, Sharon Smith's um, Women and, and Socialism and then also um, um, popular books like I can't remember the author now but Guns Germs and Steel was it yeah yeah. Um, I mean, I think that yeah, I think that what um, al and along with Stephanie Kunz's *The Way We Never Were*, um, I think that what these um, you know uh, what what you know what these materialist histories and anth anthropological examinations and, and so forth, you know, really emphasize is that a change in the economic system 
um, brings about a change in how people are organized to meet the needs of that economic system and the other social structures that are in, in place to support it. Um, so how daily life is organized, how needs are met, and so forth. And so you know, our fundamental work, you know, really needs to um, to, to 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 be about um, you know bringing about. Um, a transformation in the economic system that will bring about the full liberation of, 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 of women and of all people. But that doesn't mean that, of course, that we just sit back. It would be completely undialectical and mechanical to say, okay, honey, do, after the revolution, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about liberating you. That, yeah, that's a, a mistake we don't want to be any uh, way a, a part of. You know, any reforms that we can win now, any changes that we can make to family and to privatized reproduction, and I think we got to keep keeping that 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 phrase and that idea in there that these are you know potential blows to capitalism and the family ideology that naturalizes and upholds it um, you know gay marriage for example I think it's perfectly possible for the US ruling class to decide it's going to adapt and adjust to gay marriage as long as that issue of privatized reproduction isn't touched in the same way that it adapted and adjusted in some ways to the demands of the women's liberation movement as long as it meant the advancement of a Hillary Clinton or a Condoleezza Rice and um, and and not of the um, many many um, women whose labor supports um, their um, their yeah their, 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 their lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, winning demands around um, gay marriage are incredibly important, you know, first for the immediate um, relief um, that it brings to people in terms of, 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 of ending of social and economic um, discrimination that, that, that comes with um, insisting on heterosexual marriage alone, and the confidence um, to keep on struggling and to rethink a whole host of questions and contradictions that come up in the course of the struggle. Why is it that all those organizations that are against gay marriage have family in it? What is this idea? You know, it, it opens up a great opportunity, I think, for as socialists, for us to come in and talk to people about the role of the family under capitalism um, and the um, and the, the the economic as well as the as well as the the, the social functions of of. Um, of the of the family, and so you know, and I think it's a great opportunity to say, yeah, we've got to fight for gay marriage, and we've got to fight for married. Um, I got married, you know, I, you know, I, I love my husband, all of that, but I never imagined that um, that that I would have to be married to him, to you know, that that I needed that kind of seal of, of approval, but he needed. A surgery, a very serious surgery, and I had better health care than he did. And so we got married very fast. So that, you know, we got married in May, he had surgery in June. Terrific. Um, and so, you know, but we need to have the right, you know, not to. Um, you know, not 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 to not to be married as well when it comes to, to health care. And I'm going to end with just a, a quick um, anecdote. Um, it comes from uh, France. I'm not an expert on France, um, and um, and I would not claim um, French society to be a place where women are by any means liberated. But because of national health care and because marriage doesn't come with a whole host of economic material benefits that are that are that are tied to and made exclusive um, to it alone um, most of my um, 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 husband's family members there and friends um, are not married have never been married 
may have one, two, three children, you know, have, have various partners and, and so forth. And I witnessed a, a conversation some time ago in which um, a grandfather was saying he wished he had chosen a different wedding ring because he is married. And his granddaughter, who was about nine years old, looked at him and said, you and grandma are married? <laughs> Complete and total, you know, total shock. And that just gives you, you know, an, an inkling. Again, this is far from full liberation in France. I'm not saying that at, at all. But it gives you an inkling of how, you know, a change in material conditions brings about also, you know, sh you know shapes a, a change in the kind of social structures and attitudes and, um, and ideas. Um, so, um, you know, I think we just have to keep... Um, you know, like in, in, in terms of, 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 of gay marriage, you know, keep insisting on the class basis of the issue and that, um, and that we're, you know, fighting for, um, you know, continuing to fight against privatized um, reproduction, kind of the, the uh, you know, full blows to, um, you know, all aspects of, of, of capitalism and how it's working through the family. Okay, it's lunchtime. <laughs> Sorry, do you to talk? Sure. I just I didn't want to take up the discussion because I feel like everyone else understood it, but I just want to ask what like privatized reproduction. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.